0: Today from the global lane, 10 years of war, death and devastation. Syrians still crying out for help. People are losing hope. 40 days on the front line, stories of forbidden faith, and an imprisoned North Korean Christian unable to forgive her persecutors.
1: This regime had caused so much heartache and so much suffering for her. She just wasn't there yet.
0: Sweeping reforms unfair to the blue? The U.S. House approves the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act.
2: Imagine what you would feel like if if we, you know, punished a, a collective group for the sins of one member.
0: And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Ten years have now passed since the Arab Spring transformed into war in Syria. Few people on Earth today have seen such widespread and massive devastation, experienced such horrendous suffering, as have the Syrians. As many as half a million have died, and that's about 2% of the country's population. More than half of Syria's 20 million people are either internally displaced or are living in other countries as refugees. You're unlikely to hear about it in the news as often as you once did, but this suffering continues. And here to bring us up to date from Amman, Jordan, is Johan Moy. Mr. Moy is Syria Response Director for World Vision. Johan, it's a pleasure to talk with you. So tell us, this war has gone on now for a decade. Is there any end in sight? What's the situation on the ground now?
3: Well, the situation hasn't changed very much in the last couple of years, unfortunately, I must say. Um, to some extent, the, the conflict has become, become more complicated as more nations are involved. And uh, more and more people are displaced. So after the, the many people who left the country a couple of years ago, the internal displacement uh, still continues. And most people have fled to the north, in the northwest of uh, Syria, where uh, uh, World Vision is trying to help us, uh, as good as we can.
0: Well, we've already mentioned some of the human toll, Johan, but economically... Your partner, Frontier Economics, reports the cost of this conflict could exceed $1.7 trillion, that's in today's money, by 2035. And that's unheard of. What does that mean for Syria and its people?
3: Well, it means that um, Syria, that was almost like a middle-income country, has really uh, gone from bad to worse. Um, The economy has totally collapsed most people have hardly sufficient to eat. Children, uh, 30% of the children do not get any schooling whatsoever. And a whole generation is actually growing up in a war situation. So, beside the economic um, disaster for the country, it is also a generation that is almost lost uh, for its future. And yet, um we hope for better times definitely
0: well back to that human toll and the children i know world vision reports the toll on children goes far beyond as you mentioned just their daily nutritional needs many of those kids lack education they suffer from war trauma ptsd their overall life expectancy expectancy has been reduced by 13 years it seems that although half a million people have died, the war has killed the future of an entire generation. So the future of the country, actually. How do you ever get beyond that?
3: And, it's, it's, and the numbers are enormous. Huh? You you mentioned them. It's kind of hard to um, visualize what is happening. The country doesn't learn to survive. I mean, the resilience of people is going down. and And although we we do what we can, people are losing hope. And um, I mean, when you hear about a million people being displaced, it's, it's, I mean, entire cities uh, have to move to safer areas. And for us, it's almost impossible to understand. And although humanitarians like World Vision, but uh, also quite a few other organizations are doing their level best but unless there is peace in the country, the suffering will continue.
0: What about the uh, status of the Syrian church? Many Christians have fled, but some still remain there. When I visited Ma'lula uh, and Damascus five years ago, it seemed like the church had been devastated, but it was still surviving. Share your observations.
3: Yeah, my own observation, first of all, it is it is a privilege to partner with uh, churches that have been around for so long, um, particularly the Orthodox churches, they have been there for 2,000 years. They have their faith, of course, but it is also part of their nationality. For, For many of them, it's not even an option to leave the country. Um, I don't know how they do it but uh, I was talking to one of the bishops the other day and uh, he is pleading for help and uh, he, he he sees people trying to escape uh, the the war and yet he feels that uh, Christians have a role to play in the country so he's he's pleading for his um, his people to stay but uh, you know as a as a non-Syrian, it's hard to imagine what it, what it is for people to have to stay in a situation like that. But, but the church does have an important role to play.
0: Well, we will continue to pray for them and also help as we can. From Amman, Jordan, Johan Moy, Syrian Response Director for World Vision. Thank you for sharing your time and insights. Thank you. The world is becoming less free. That according to the latest Global Freedom Survey by Freedom House. And if you follow the news regularly, you know that the persecution of Christians worldwide is on the upswing. Our next guest knows a lot about it. He's traveled to restricted and hostile countries for the voice of the martyrs for more than 20 years. Todd Nettleton is the host of VOM Radio, author of the new VOM book, When Faith is Forbidden. 40 days on the front lines with persecuted Christians. So, Todd, it's good to see you again. Before we discuss the book, I know you've served the persecuted church now for 20 years. I'm sure you've seen persecution grow worse. So why do you think it's getting worse? Why is that happening?
1: You know, I I think part of the answer to that question is actually good news. And the reason that persecution is increasing in many places is because the church is growing. There are more Christians in the Middle East. There are more Christians in China, which means there are more potential targets for persecution. So yes, persecution is increasing, but in part at least, that's actually good news because it represents the growth of the church. So let's begin with those detailed in
0: five chapters of your book, Turkey the Malatya Martyrs. Now, next month, it'll be 14 years since the death of those three Christians. Now, there are two Turks and a German. Remind us what happened to them, Todd, and, and what did you learn from meeting with their families?
1: Well, as you say, two Turks and a German Christian were killed in the offices of a Christian publishing house there in Malatya in central Turkey. Uh, the five guys who committed the murders had posed as seekers. and In fact, two of them had visited the church. They had met with the pastor. They'd asked questions indicating, hey, we want to know more about Jesus. We want to know more about being a Christian. All of that was a ruse in order to set up a meeting at the Christian publishing house where they showed up with ropes and knives and they killed our three brothers. I had the chance to be in Turkey just seven weeks after those killings and got to meet numerous people involved in the story. I met the two widows from the two martyrs who had been married. I met the fiancé of the third martyr who was engaged at the time of his death. What I came away with was just the faithfulness of God and the amazing courage, particularly of the two widows. Uh, Just 24 hours after their husbands were killed, they were on national television in Turkey forgiving the men who had killed their husbands offering forgiveness, literally echoing the words of Christ on the cross, Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. A Muslim journalist in Turkey said those two ladies by offering forgiveness did more for Christianity in Turkey than a thousand missionaries could have done in a thousand years. That's the impact of the forgiveness. And I think that's part of the reason that that story has so impacted and and so stayed with me all these years. I'm always
0: amazed at the attitude of Christians who have been in prison for their faith. You feature quite a few in the book, but tell us about Mrs. Choi, the woman from North Korea, and what she told you about her time in the gulag there.
1: You know, Mrs. Choi had just an incredibly sad story, and it was was hard to sit with her and listen to the suffering that she had had. One of the amazing things about Mrs. Choi's story, her husband was in the Communist Party in North Korea. He was a person of some influence, and so— At the end of her trial, her first trial, she was actually found innocent. The the judge said, you're innocent. These charges have no merit. You can go. Well, the Communist Party, the North Korean, the regime there, they they couldn't allow that to stay. So they quickly said, oh, wait a minute. We're going to have a redo. We're going to have another trial. This time, before she was taken to the trial, Mrs. Choi was beaten so severely that she couldn't even speak at the trial. She couldn't even talk in her own defense. And of course, this time the regime got the the verdict that they wanted. She was found guilty and sent off to prison. Like our sisters in Turkey, the the Christians we meet have already come to the point of forgiveness. They've been able to say, you know, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I forgive my persecutors. Uh, Sister Troy wasn't there yet. I think one of the things that helps us to do is it helps us pray for Christians who are in that spot. They've been persecuted, and they're trying to forgive, but they're not there yet. And we can pray that the Holy Spirit will empower them to come to that point of saying, I forgive, I forgive even the people who persecuted me.
0: You're among the first to interview our mutual friend from the Czech Republic, Peter Yashik. He was in prison for 15 months with ISIS jihadists in Sudan. You've known Peter for a long time, so have I. You were surprised, though, when you met him
1: shortly after his release. Why was that? we wondered as i went to czech republic to meet with him after his release what what's going to be left what's going to have happened to peter how is peter going to be in comparison to the peter that we used to know before prison before being in a cell with isis fighters and i came back from czech republic and i told my wife he's the same peter he just loves jesus more now somehow that 14 months in prison had actually strengthened his love for Christ and deepened his love for Christ. And so I came back and said, he's the same Peter, but he loves Jesus even more now than he did before. A lot of great stories, loving Jesus more.
0: Okay. The book is When Faith is Forbidden, 40 Days on the Front Lines with Persecuted Christians. I saw the book on Amazon. Where else can people get it, Todd? It's available
1: wherever you buy books. It is published by Moody Publishers. We have links uh, to different retailers at whenfaithisforbidden.com. So you can find links to wherever you'd like to buy it, whenfaithisforbidden.com. Okay, Todd
0: Nettleton, congratulations on the book and thanks for sharing.
1: Thank you, Gary. It's always fun to talk to you.
0: Understaffed, insufficiently equipped, and inadequately trained, Those are the main conclusions of a report released this week on Capitol Hill security in the aftermath of the January 6th riot. Among the recommendations, adding body cameras, improved intelligence coordination, and increasing the size of the Capitol Hill police force. This comes on the heels of police reform legislation passed by the U.S. House of Representatives called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Well, joining us to explain more is Randy Peterson. Mr. Peterson is senior researcher of the policing initiative at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Randy, thank you for being with us. So first, let's just discuss this report in general. What do you think of retired Army General Honoré's recommendations?
2: Well, the use of body cams, I think, is not uh, problematic. In fact, I think it's mostly welcomed by law enforcement. I believe the the data shows that um, body camera use tends to exonerate uh, the police far more often than it implicates them in any wrongdoing. So um, that's not necessarily pro- problematic. I do find it a little bit um, ironic that the, the same side of the aisle that um, spent all last summer calling to defund the police wants the police directly around them to be increased, um, which 800 new officers would be a dramatic increase in, In funding, so that part is uh, is interesting to me, to say the least.
0: It is now. Some people would say it's overreacting a little bit. Critics are not downplaying, of course, the seriousness of the January sixth riot. But after all, it was the first like it in U.S. history, one in over two hundred years. So, what has changed?
2: Uh, Well, what has changed is that it's opportunistic for one side to point out. Uh, the rioting on the other side. Um, you know, the, the left spent an, almost eight months to a year ignoring the fact that most of our major cities were on fire. Um, and then for a single day, uh, what in comparison is, a, is a, a minor riot in comparison to the hundred-plus days that Portland and Seattle were, uh, were rioting, um, there was an immediate response. They found the word violence again, um, it, it, it just seems, it's, it's very hypocritical, I guess, to say the least. And, and this is not to justify what happened on January 6th by any means. That was horrible.
0: Of course. Well, let's look at the George Floyd Act that was passed by the House recently. Most people probably support eliminating police chokeholds, no-knock warrants. But the legislation also eliminates qualified immunity for police and redirects funding to community-based policing programs. So what do you think of those proposals?
2: Well, to go to the first point, um, you know, the the, the public, uh, th- there is some consensus around banning chokeholds, but what we recognize as chokeholds is, you know, a cutting off of the airway, which no police department trains to do. Um, but a vascular neck restraint, which restricts blood flow, um, is used by some police departments and is almost always non-lethal. When you start to take away those kinds of tools, when you when you make uh, some legislation in certain parts of the country have made uh, multiple activations of the TASER deadly force or uh, the use of the the vascular neck restraint deadly force, when you start to move those out of the realm that they're actually in, which is almost always uh, non-lethal, you take away a tool from the police and a less lethal tool, which automatically begins to escalate their um, their responses, right? And, and they're not going to train in a, uh, a system that is now classified as deadly force when they already train with their firearms for that purpose. Um, so you've really taken away a tool that can be life saving and placed it into an arena that it doesn't belong. So that's, that's one part. But the qualified immunity uh, portion is very concerning. I mean, if you look at the language they put in there, it's, it's not a, even a defense if the officer's acting in good faith. Um, you know, and, and something goes, goes terribly wrong that violates someone's uh, uh, constitutional rights, that, that there's, there's not even, that's not even considered a defense in there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that things like this, even calling it the George Floyd Act, right, that, you know, there, there's over 700,000 police officers in the country, and only one of them put their knee on George Floyd's neck. And to cast all of those fine men and women in that same category um is i mean imagine what you would feel like if if we you know punished a, a collective group for the sins of one member
0: and finally randy the defund police movement it seems like we're hearing less about that these days but supporting police defunding may have cost democrats some seats in the house in the last election maybe that's why we're not hearing about it but it's still being pushed by some politicians and communities tell us more about that
2: well, the, the defunding the police movement is is probably the most dangerous uh, sentiment that we have here. You know that when you take away funding, um, you automatically have to cut training, and training is the most important mechanism by which we can improve policing. Um, you know the the part of the report saying that the Capitol Police were undertrained that would go for almost every police department in the United States. They're not they're not unique in that in that situation. They just don't have the funds to properly train the way that uh, that they should. Um, defunding compounds that. It makes it worse. It doesn't make it better. Um, if, if you're looking to have less uh, bad use of force incidents as ones that go really bad, the worst way you could do that is to take away training from police, and that's what defunding really does. You know, the, we're going to see it's going to take a while to find out the effects on the generation of the teachers leaving uh, you know, an entire g- generation behind by leaving the classrooms for over a year. We won't know the effects of that for some time. But if the police leave us, we'll see the effects of that tomorrow.
0: Well, it's hard to believe that anyone would want to be a police officer nowadays. Randy Peterson of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, thank you for sharing your insights
2: today. Yes, sir. Thank you.
0: When they run for office, many politicians promise voters they'll deliver full transparency in government. Then once they get in, they work aggressively to hide their misdeeds from the public. Their attitude now... How dare people demand accountability and full disclosure of malfeasance from New York and Michigan nursing homes? Late last March, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo sent 9,000 COVID positive patients to super spreader nursing homes in the state. Not a good idea, right? But it happened. And we now know that at least 15,000 people may have died in those nursing homes, nearly twice as many as originally reported. Last April, Cuomo signed legislation shielding New York nursing homes from lawsuits over COVID deaths. Listen to New York Assemblyman Ron Kim. He tried to repeal the legislation, calling it a license to kill.
2: If you follow the money, Governor Cuomo got about $1.5 million in campaign donors donations, from the same industry lobbyist who wrote the language of the legal immunity, who bragged about it in a press release.:
0: The governor reportedly threatened Kim after the assemblyman made that disclosure. Cuomo allegedly said he'd destroy Kim. Meanwhile, in Michigan, there are now calls for a possible criminal investigation of Governor Whitmer's handling of nursing homes early on in the pandemic. Some Republicans allege Whitmer paid hush money to the former state health department director to keep him quiet about COVID nursing home misdeeds. Robert Gordon resigned in January and received what Whitmer says was a $156,000 separation agreement. In return, the former health director signed a confidentiality agreement. Governor Whitmer denies it was hush money designed to keep Gordon quiet. She said, quote, separation agreements are used often in the public and private sector. Michigan State House Oversight Committee Chair Steve Johnson disagrees.
2: This is not something that's common, not something that we've seen here in state government before. And if it is so common, then why weren't they open in the public about it? It was actually the work of a dedicated journalist that exposed this. It's something that they tried to hide all along. Um, And this is taxpayer money. And, folks, that's why the people
0: of Michigan deserve the truth. This was a public official. The public pays his salary. And he received $156,000 of taxpayer money in exchange for secrecy. What does Gordon know? When did he know it? Why was he given this unusual sum of money? It sure seems like someone wants to keep him quiet, doesn't it? Let's pray he doesn't end up like Jimmy Hoffa. But the people of Michigan deserve better. So do the people of New York. There should be full disclosure and an independent, non-political investigation conducted in both states. If Governors Cuomo and Whitmer have nothing to hide, then let's see them call for a thorough investigation. Utterances on the campaign trail advocating transparent government... Need to be more than empty promises. It's time to get at the truth. And promises made, promises kept. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, MeWe, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.